Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Pearl Buck, one of Roosevelt's first advisory board members, said that, quote, all things are possible until they are proved impossible. And even the impossible may only be so as of now. On a special live episode for International Women's Day, our extraordinary guests talked about redefining what's possible as leaders. Our Women's Leadership Council co-chairs, Trustee Larissa Herzak and Trustee Ann Ford, offered a personal perspective on obstacles to gender equality. They also shared their best advice for anyone who aspires to be a leader, no matter what their title is. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our International Women's Day live podcast. Remarkable women have been part of Roosevelt University since its founding in 1945, starting with the first advisory board chair, Eleanor Roosevelt. In the 75 years since, Roosevelt has counted many extraordinary women among its students, staff, trustees, and friends, and faculty, of course. Our Women's Leadership Council, which was formed in 2019, is hosting today's discussion to celebrate the work and achievements of women. The council supports the personal and professional growth of women and identifies critical issues that women still face while facilitating solutions to close the gender gap. As we continue to call for gender parity, it's important to reflect on and celebrate women's many successes across political, economic, social, and cultural spheres. I invite you to join us on Roosevelt Social Media today and throughout March, where we will share the stories of inspirational Roosevelt University women. Now, I would like to introduce our moderator, Kenyatta Metheny. Ken is a Chief Investment Officer of Equity Trust, where he oversees the investment portfolio. He previously served as the Senior Investment Officer at the Teacher's Retirement System of the State of Illinois, TRS. Prior to TRS, Ken was a Senior Vice President at Associated Bancorp. Ken has also been active in public service, having previously served on the board of the Sue Duncan Foundation and the YMCA. Currently, he serves on the Roosevelt Women's Leadership Council Advisory Board. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today to moderate the council's first event of the month, recognizing women leaders in our society. Thank you, President Ali. It is truly an honor to be here, and I appreciate that introduction. I joined the Women's Leadership Council Advisory Board because of my personal affinity uh, to the group and the group's mission and in achieving equality across the uh, professional landscape. It's a pleasure supporting the work of the Women's Leadership Council and joining um, important conversations like this that we're having today. I have the privilege of introducing the Women Leadership Council co-chairs, Ann Ford, and Larissa, who's also a very good close friend of mine, both of whom are also Roosevelt Board of Trustee members. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Ann first. So Ann is a partner at Hall Prangle, and she has represented and advised healthcare clients, including life sciences companies, hospitals, physician groups, large and small, and for over 25 years, including 15 years of executive leadership in the healthcare organizations. Now, prior to joining her current firm, Anne developed 
uh, global and US-based programs in healthcare compliance and worked on strategic acquisitions and has also served as general counsel of two Chicago hospitals and as a partner in a professional liability litigation firm here in Chicago. She's a member of the Executive Leadership Committee of the Medical Affairs Professional Society and is an adjunct professor at Northwestern University Prisker School of Law and is active in the American Health Lawyers Association, Society of Corporate Compliance Executives, Healthcare Compliance Association, and the Illinois Association of Healthcare Attorneys. So join me in welcoming Ann to this panel. Thank you, Ken. Glad to have you. Next up is Larissa, who is a managing partner of Oak Street Real Estate Capital, LLC, here in Chicago, and a member of the firm's investment committee. Now, Larissa focuses on sourcing, due diligence, investment monitoring, and serving on the advisory boards of Oak Street's SASC business. Now, select activities include co-founding women in real estate, serving as a mentor for the Goldie B. Wolf Miller Women's Leaders in Real Estate Initiative, as a mentor for the Twigo Foundation, one of which I'm a proud Twigo fellow, and has served as a guest speaker at the University of California, Berkeley, as well as the Kellogg School of Management and the University of Notre Dame. Now, prior to Oak Street, Larissa was responsible for global real estate investing at Morgan Creek Capital Management, Franklin Templeton Real Estate Advisors, and the Credit Suisse Customized Fund Investment Group, now known as GCM or Grosvenor. Larissa recently made a generous gift to Roosevelt University, establishing the Joan Dush Women's Leadership Scholars Program, which will connect ambitious women students with focused educational opportunities and mentorship and scholarship. Now, both of these women have broken the glass ceiling in their respective industries and have an unwavering commitment to empowering women. I know we will learn a great deal from today's discussion and look forward to diving right into it. So now that we have introductions out of the way, let's get right into the discussion. So obviously this here is not only a timely topic, but I'd like to start with, with kind of what has inspired you to get involved with the Women's Leadership Council here at Roosevelt University? I can go. There's two main categories. One is my commitment to furthering women leaders by using my past experience, being mentored by strong women and mentoring strong women, and also my passion for Roosevelt University. So together, those made it a no-brainer for me to jump in and participate in co-chairing the Women's Leadership Council at, at Roosevelt. Great. Appreciate that, Anne. Larissa? Yeah, for me, you know, it was a bit easier for me than Anne because she had already been a chair of it and she and Christy Kotek and Michael Barron had already hosted a few events. And so it was easy to see the passion, the passion and the momentum that they had already created. So I was obviously extremely flattered to be asked to, to co-chair it and, you know, clearly think it's such an important topic. It was it was a no-brainer for me at that point. But they, they picked the way to make it easy. Good. So as an accomplished lawyer and healthcare executive, talk to us about kind of your process of self-reflection, if you will, role that it's played in your ability to kind of lead your organization or even teams within your organization. Sure. I'll start first just with a general comment about self-reflection in general. I think it's absolutely critical. And whether you're a leader or not, self-reflection is the way to reach your goals. It is kind of the foundation of how we evaluate our progress and process and how we reach our goals. You might hear a dog squeaky toy in the background, excuse me. For me, I, I use a, I call it a life plan and I meld the two between professional and personal. It is a living document and I can refer to it from, not usually on a daily basis, that would be other methods of self-reflection, but it's a way for me to set out higher level goals and then also to evaluate what's most important to me and making sure that I'm spending time on the most important things. And how that informs me as a leader is you know, similar to how it informs me as a person and as a person who has a career. And that is that you, you force yourself to take some time to look at where you've been and where you're going and where there might be gaps and how to, how to improve that. So 
roughly, I feel find that that discipline process of using a life plan, people can call that document other names, but I call it a life plan. Great. Thank you. So, Larissa, you're a managing partner of a real estate private equity firm here in Chicago. So why don't you tell us about how you digest the many and often competing agendas you're presented with, right? Particularly while having to lead your investors toward the changing opportunities that often present themselves in the markets. Yeah. So I think Anne started off by saying, you know, talking about kind of self-reflection and and I think that's so important to it. So there are every day you wake up and there's your list of here are the top five things I need to get done today. And no doubt by nine o'clock, there's been three more added to that. And so I think really just trying to be constantly organized and thinking through those things. I like to start my day with exercise, whether it's ideally like a long run, but that helps me process my day and and kind of plan how I'm going to make all those pieces fit together. But I think it's then also at some point, you know, then it's four o'clock and you have not only not accomplished the top five things that you needed to do or the three that were added, but five more have been added. And so I think it's, it's also like everything, just a process of being self-aware and managing expectations of others and saying, hey, you know what? I am only going to get to three of these today. So let's have realistic goals. Let me communicate to others when they can expect things to be done and not beat myself up too much or you know, be overly critical or upset about the fact that other work has intervened and needed to be, you know, needed to become a top priority. It's interesting, and Anne and I have never talked about this, so I did not know she had a life plan, and that's amazing, and I want to hear more about it. I have had folks senior to me when I've made career decisions be very critical of me because I have not had a life plan, and I have not been as thoughtful or disciplined about processes. I have tended to certainly reflect on opportunities, but more you know, make decisions based on my gut and not had an organized way of thinking about it. So that's, that's really fascinating. So when you talk about leadership, uh, I think self-reflection, life plans, self-actualizations, I think those are critical points to building a foundation for one's uh, not only career, but for one's life. With that tends to come what I would call principles, having certain ideals around that, that further ground you on that path. Like, what would you, either of you, by the way, consider to kind of be your secret sauce in that regards? Or another way of thinking about that is, what are the two to three leadership principles that you've discovered and or have executed over the course of your career that has helped you develop the success that you, you both have achieved? We can start with you, Larissa. Sure. So again, I'm going to keep harping on it. I think Anne might as well. But I mean, self-awareness, I think, is so, so important and Obviously, there is no shortage of leadership advice out there, and everyone will give you their opinion on leadership. And that's all great, and it's great to listen to that, but you need to take all of that advice and filter it and make it your own. So, you know, advice that is going to be really instrumental or meaningful to Anne or Ken is maybe not going to be the best advice for me. And just because, you know, Ken can present in a certain way or Anne can present in a certain way. I could say those exact same words and it it might not work. And so I think understanding your personality and really making sure that the advice you're taking in works for you. And you only learn that by trial and error as well. So, you know, not being afraid to try things and have them fail and and then reflect on it and improve, I, I think is really important. And so kind of the secondary concept to that I would say is is flexibility, you know, and just wanting to constantly grow. And, and be flexible in every aspect of what you're doing, not sacrifice key principles, but make sure that you're constantly growing. And then the two things that for me are really important and based on my personality in particular have been challenging are, you know, I am a very all or nothing reactive person. And so I tend to react in situations and that 90 times out of 100 is, is maybe not the best thing you can do, especially and a disagreement. And so the ability to step back, to, to listen and really hear what's being said and not just react to it, but to kind of internalize it and then come back with a more thoughtful response has been 
really important to me based on my personality. Obviously, again, for other people, that might not be a secret sauce point at all. Good. Thank you, Larissa. And your thoughts? Yeah, thank you. I want to come back to some of the things that uh, Larissa said because they resonate with me as well. And I sort of use some of the same principles with maybe some different words. But the first three things that came to my mind were humility, empathy, and listening slash learning. Those may, there's so many leadership examples and there's things that are far more hard skills, like how do you execute and how do you motivate your team? All of those are important as well. But I find that for me, if you are a leader that has these soft skills, you are going to be poised to take in a lot of information and handle whatever comes your way. One of the things, Larissa, well, a couple of things that Larissa said, one was make your leadership style your own. Don't try to copy someone else. And another way I would say that is be authentic. Don't try to act like so-and-so or be like so-and-so. It's great to have mentors and examples in leadership so that you can take those pieces and parts that resonate with you and that fit within your personality and make them your own. And I also wanted to comment on her, I think it was an answer to the previous question about not beating yourself up we need to be kind to ourselves, that we treat ourselves like we would treat other people and have that same empathy towards ourselves. You raised very good points. And you mentioned something in that comment that resonated with me. You mentioned mentors. And I'm going to come at that from a, from a much broader perspective, and, uh, and that is relationships, right? And, and relationships tend to be key to all of our lives and in many forms, right? And not just families and friendships, but obviously from a professional perspective as well. And so when you think about mentorship from a broader perspective, both peers, maybe subordinates, and or those in which you may have to report to, whether it's a board, et cetera, what role has relationships kind of played in your ability to both grow as leaders and then function at a high level uh, that you both are currently kind of operating in? And Larissa, would you mind uh, starting this off there? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, something I always liberally steal from Michelle Obama, who talks about her personal board of directors. And I, I just think that in life, that couldn't be more true. And, and really leadership, right? Every single person is a leader. You don't need to have a C-suite title. Every person is a leader. When you're an analyst starting out, you're, you're still a leader. And so, you know, I think having a varied a board of directors and that for me you know when i was starting out in my career there there were some women but very few in senior positions and so my my mentors were men and that was incredibly useful they were wonderful i you know right or wrong nature or nurture i don't know but i do think that men often provide different perspectives than women and as long as, you know, and I think there, that diversity is really important, right? And you want to have the diversity of, of different perspectives, regardless of, of how or why it's there. A lot of my board of directors, you know, are, are my parents and people who aren't even in a financial industry, who don't day to day really probably understand what I do, but are great sounding boards and are just very rational, sensible people who are not is in the weeds. And that can be really helpful perspective as well as someone like, like Ken, you know, and having friends who are in the industry who you can bounce ideas off of, who know the cast of characters that you're talking about, that you're venting about, you know, and, and I think all of those are really important as well as, you know, more junior folks, not just your peers, but, you know, the, the folks who've worked for you, who've moved on, who know you really well, who know, your leadership strengths and weaknesses, you know, who hopefully are blossoming themselves as in their roles are also really fantastic uh, mentors. So my Twigo mentee, you know, is definitely a key part of my board of advisors, despite the fact that technically I was her mentor. And so I think all of those, you know, the, the broader and more diverse your board of directors can be, the better it's going to be because you get, you can filter such great diverse opinions. And I want to go back to that uh, life plan that you were talking about. 
How did you incorporate mentors in that life plan of yours, which is, you know, quite frankly, a phenomenal idea? And then how did that shift over the years for you? Yeah. So I've had a number of mentors, as you might imagine, over the years and throughout my career. And we'll agree with both of you that they're it's a 360 type of arrangement in terms of mentorship. It's not just above. And so just to answer that question about the the mentors in my life, I've had both male and female mentors and they've taken different roles and have served different purposes depending on where I am in my career. So how I plug them into my life plan is again, when you think about, you know, what your goals are and I, I want to make another point here that with a life plan, it's not static. It changes because we sometimes change our mind. Our paths are more jungle gym like than than straight up than linear. So we need to adapt our strategies. And so mentors and relationships are a key part of those strategies to achieving the goals and getting to where we want to be. I also just one last comment about building on something that Larissa said. She talked about getting different perspectives from different kinds of mentors. And the the word I would use there is diversity, obviously gender, racial, ethnic diversity, but also diversity in experience, diversity in types of backgrounds, diversity in terms of political perspectives and other perspectives so that you're really opening yourself up to to the most possible opportunities and the the clearest vision for how you want to execute on your plan. And let's stay with you for a moment. With your last comments in mind, what practical advice would you give to someone, say, moving into a leadership position for the first time that doesn't necessarily have, as Larissa had mentioned earlier, that board of directors, if you will, of mentors, but now they find themselves in a position of leadership and, and being empowered with making certain decisions. How would you implore that individual to approach the idea of building these relationships or mentors? It's a great question. And I think it starts with, again, keeping an open mind and not just looking up, but looking down and to the either side of you for individuals that can help fill out certain parts of your leadership, if you want to call it gaps, or you're helping you to fulfill your leadership goals. So for a, again, I'm very goal oriented and I, I would urge any, anyone and particularly a new leader to have leadership goals. What is it that you want to accomplish? And that way you gives you an end point. So you can go back and figure out what kinds of mentors you need. And they may not be in the places you think. Again, not just above, but they may not even be in your unique specialty. I have been general counsel at a couple of hospitals, and some of my mentors were leaders in the finance department and in strategy. So don't just look to your boss or the people within your particular professional area of expertise. I also think it's it's so important and this makes me feel old, but you know, back in the day when I started work and the internet barely existed and we were walking around barefoot in the snow uphill both ways to school and the office, there weren't mentorship programs. And so it's fantastic that now there are so many formal mentorship programs and embracing those is terrific. But the informal mentors are, I think, even more important. And the mentors who don't even know they're your mentor, right? And so really just stepping back and saying, hey, here's someone in the office I really admire. Why? What, what is it about their leadership style? What is it about how they're executing their role that I relate to that I think they do a really good job on? What don't they? What are their weaknesses? And applying that to yourself. But I think formal mentorship is fantastic. But I also think just using someone as a role model who might not even know that they're serving in that mentorship role is is really important. But I would say what I have always found also really helps define the formal mentorship programs and make them successful is it's really hard when someone comes at you with a very broad base, like, Anne, how can you help me? What is Anne, you know, it's very difficult for Anne to answer that question, right? And so really making sure when you're 
you know, working with a mentor or a mentee, that it's it's a very specific ask. Like, Anne, you know, what what is it about my personality? You know, what have you noticed that you think is really productive? And where have you noticed any weaknesses? What are things I should work on? What did you work on? You know, and making sure you have really specific questions, not this like, oh, who should I talk to? How can you help me? Because that's really hard for anyone to, to be thoughtful about responding to. And so I think really thinking through, you know, each discussion you have, kind of what you want your key points to be and, and what you want to get out of it and make sure that you're really targeting thoughtful questions around those, those topics. Yeah, again, I'm goal oriented. And I would say, if you know what you want, granted, it might change over time. But if you know what you want, you know where your destination is, you know the map you need to get there. And I'm going to give you an example of someone who is a mentor to me, who didn't start off, I don't think he intended to be a, as much of a mentor, but I knew what I wanted. I knew what my goals were. He was a general counsel at Rush University Medical Center, and I was a legal extern in the Office of Legal Affairs there. And I said to him one day, I said, I would like to have your job someday. So how do I get there? <laughs> and he actually loved that question. It was, it was a little bit more detailed than how do I get there, but he appreciated not only the directness and the fact that I had a goal, but that he could answer a question very specifically then and in how to build my career plan for the next 10 years. So that's, uh, that, that's very good. And what I'm hearing is a few themes that I just kind of want to recap here. And that is that these actions that you two have taken in your career have been on purpose, right? You have purposefully created life plans, created your individual board of directors. You've done it from the perspective of formal relationships where you're going to those um, who you view as prime examples of leadership and kind of where you want to take your career and creating those formal relationships and paths for communication, but that there's also an informal component to it that extends toward peers, as well as those that have already achieved a certain level of success in leadership. And so all those are really, uh, really good examples and key. I have many of those myself in my career, and it always makes a difference. And to your point, Ann, it's ever evolving, right? Once you reach a certain point and or obtain a leadership role for the first time, things start to shift in terms of what you need or may require in terms of mentors. So, so very interesting. I just wanted to recap some of those themes that we were discussing there, which I felt were all important. If we can uh, switch gears a little bit and let's talk about equity, if you will, specifically say the, the gender challenges that are often faced by women in the workplace. I think now is an interesting time given the backdrop of all that's happened over the past year, 18 months. And no one here on this panel or that's listening in is a stranger to that. But on your particular paths toward breaking through what many would still view today as a glass ceiling, what do you see as kind of some of the most persistent uh, and or pressing obstacles that you're still faced with today as you try to navigate not only where you are, but, but as you still try to life, you know, navigate your life plans as they exist today? Sure. Well, I think we still face stereotypes as women. I'm in the legal profession. There certainly are a lot of women in the legal profession, but we still are underrepresented in the highest ranks in partnership levels. Again, statistically, I'm not saying that about my own firm, but we statistically in the legal profession, they're still dominated in, in the leadership positions by men. I just have to relate a story that my one of my key mentors get, relayed to me just the other day. He was on a Zoom conference with a, a mediation in a different state and a very, very experienced judge, so had been around for many years, a male, said to my mentor, who's the managing partner of our firm, are you the court reporter? <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was really, again, laughable, but sad. Those used to be common occurrences when I first entered the law in the early 90s, uh, when we go into court and the, you know, the assumption would be that you're there to be the court reporter. So I think it just takes a long time to turn this ship around of stereotypes. And we need to be open minded and, and not overreactive, I guess I would say, as as well and help our fellow colleagues understand what the, you know, that, that these gender issues are really not what should keep us back. 
it's it's very interesting how many people, even women, are stereo are are very geared to assume that certain roles are held by by men. So I think awareness activities, I think focusing on things like International Women's Day and Women's Month are are key to keep reminding people that this is these differences are are depriving our companies of perspectives and we can be far more successful with diversity in gender, race, ethnicity, and all other ways. You're listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Thank you. Larissa, I want to attack the same question with you, but from a slightly different perspective. So you're in asset management, work for a private equity real estate firm. And for all of our viewers, that is a very limited opportunity space for both minorities and or women, particularly as it relates to positions of leadership and firm ownership, particularly when you're trying to manage assets uh, for institutional pension funds, et cetera. How have you dealt with that challenge of the expectation, which not to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure you've probably been in a situation where they have looked to maybe your white male counterpart or others within your firm and have, have boxed you in, as Anne had mentioned, with a prejudice around your position and or value add to your firm and, and the success that it's had. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a great question. And I will say I, I feel fortunate in that I've had very few truly offensive experiences in my career, really like only one that stands out long, long ago when I was also at a law firm, but lots of lots of little slights. And I, I think the important thing to remember, we've made great strides. There's uh, and I, there's always going to be assholes like there's there always are. And and so what has been. I think most successful for me is knowing that, right? So knowing when, when things like the, the anecdote that Anne gave, it's not personal to her mentor. It's not personal. So don't, don't let it rattle you. Don't take it personally. Don't internalize. Um, There are times when absolutely you should stand up and say something, you know, so don't, don't be a, a meek little quiet creature about it. If it, if it rises to the level of needing to say something, but, but I think assess the situation, don't take it personally. And frankly, in, in some ways, I've kind of always enjoyed it because I really like on being underestimated. And so, you know, leadership is equal parts about you and it's about how you maneuver other people and reading other people and understanding what's motivating other people. And so I think, you know, taking that person who's always going to exist in the world, unfortunately, and turning what is an offensive comment into a strength for you, in my mind, is the best way to deal with it. Now, again, I've been really fortunate. There haven't been situations that really so were so egregious that I felt like I had to stand up and defend myself. You know, there were things that I could let go and just put in my arsenal and and know what I was dealing with and how I could come back stronger from it. But, you know, I, I personally believe hopefully in most situations that really just turning it into a strength and, you know, using it to be the underdog and to come back out stronger and know that, that you are in a position of power because people don't think you are and they're underestimating you is, is the most successful way I've dealt with that. Boy, I couldn't agree more. Um, I've had more incidences than you have, it sounds like, but I say the same thing. Go ahead, please underestimate me. I want you to. So I'm a father of three girls, and my oldest is 14 and a freshman in high school. And she's asked me as of late more about my position as a chief investment officer and what, what does that mean and what is it like with all the people that report to me, et cetera. And So I often say to her, because she asked me a very interesting question one day, this was maybe a couple months ago, what is it like managing or leading a large group of people at your company that are working for you? And through that conversation, what I expressed to her was to get to that point, what matters is how you deal with people, how you treat people. And it doesn't start at that point. It starts now. And 
with the things that you're involved with, sports, basketball, et cetera, focus on everything you do and doing that well, and then being able to help others to do well in what they're doing. And so I use that as a preface to say, what advice would you give young ladies today, young women today that are looking to today or tomorrow be leaders um, in their communities, in their organizations, or just out there in the marketplace? And we can start with you, Ann. It's a little general, but I would say don't limit yourself. Decide what you have a passion for and what you want to do and aim as high as you possibly can. Because if you don't, you know, no one else is going to, you'll be lucky to have other people supporting you, but you're the one who has to drive that ship. So I would say look for, we've talked a lot about mentors, but don't try to go it alone either. Look for people who can support you, male, female, again, in the 360 scope, above, below, alongside. And I'll put another plug in for a life plan. Figure out what you want and how you're going to get there. Okay. Larissa? Yeah. And, and I, I completely agree. But I also think, you know, I think a lot of the attributes that make you a very good leader also make you your own hardest critic. And so I, I think you want to have a lot of self-actualization and self-reflection, but don't beat yourself up over things right? We all have strengths and weaknesses. You know, I'm never going to change my personality. I'm not going to. And it's what makes me me. And people can be critical of it. And I know what I can do better. But I think, you know, you need to make that a strength and not beat yourself up about, well, gosh, I I wish I could react to something a different way, or I should do this. You know, I I think part of self-actualization is it's very difficult to balance being overly critical, which can get you to a, neg- a really bad place. And it's it's interesting to me to see that a lot of the most, you know, our, our most successful folks at, at the firm are the ones who are the most critical, who will come into an annual review and have the most things that they identify as weaknesses, the most things that they want to work on. And if, you know, in the wrong in the wrong atmosphere, that starts to undermine confidence and that becomes a really big problem. So I think aim so high, but set realistic goals and, and make sure you're treating yourself well and not beating yourself up over things that are going to be a long-term evolution to improvement. Great. Thanks, Larissa. I want to be mindful of our time here. And I know that I think we have some audience questions coming in. But before we get to those, what I would like to do is kind of bring our conversation back to the Women's Leadership Council and, you know, specifically want to chat about, you know, your expectations around the, the, the council and what you hope to accomplish, you know, over the next few years. And let's start with you. Sure. Well, I'd like to see the Women's Leadership Council at Roosevelt continue on the trajectory at which we started with a very, very strong first year. And I don't have specific metrics by how much to increase our membership year over year or our programming, but I would say to keep that momentum going and keeping new membership and constantly evaluating our programming is a way to do that. I would love to see us have real impact on women leaders. And I liked Just to to clarify what Larissa said is everyone can be a leader regardless of whether you have that title. So developing whether you're regardless of where you are in your career, those of you in the audience, we would like to think that you could benefit from the programming that we provide to help you become a better leader. And Larissa, who do you see as, you know, the candidates to to get involved with the Women's Leadership Council? I mean, I know you and I had, had spoken for some time and and I obviously has, has become involved, but, but who do you view as, as, as the council being open to? Yeah, I mean, our hope is everyone, right? And that, that was one of the reasons that really attracted me to the mission of the council is, you know, women's leadership is, a, is about women, it's about men, it's, it's about everyone. And so, you know, I think the more diverse people who join, the more diverse perspectives we have, the more diverse programming we have, and every meaning of that word, the more successful I think it's going to be. Because again, leadership is 
it's about you and it's about everyone else in the world. And so the more your understanding of you and everyone else in the world and, and getting those perspectives, the better leader every single person is going to be. And again, you know, to the point that Anne just reemphasized, everyone is a leader, whether, you know, you're a junior in college or, you know, a general counsel, everyone is a leader in their own life in some way, shape or form. And so I just think they're really important skills that hopefully we can, you know, continue the momentum, as Anne said, and, and help even more people develop their leadership skills. And just, I know that we didn't talk a lot about how this is executed in our personal lives, but we are leaders in our personal lives too. If we're parents, if we're older siblings, if we're neighbors, we're leaders and we can take these principles, even if we're taking a pause in our professional career, we can still develop these principles. That's a very good point, Anne. And as I look back, you know, at our discussion here over the past, you know, roughly 30 minutes, right? I think we've touched, a, we've touched upon a lot, right? I think we started with having a life plan, having some sort of self-reflection or actualization, uh, having it grounded in some principles, you know, relationships being a key part of that and having your individual board of directors, having it be a mix of formal mentors as well as peers and other folks that may not even necessarily um, know that they're mentors, but they're role models that you look up to. And then, you know, we kind of brought it full circle in terms of that being the mission of the Women's Leadership Council here, right? And being a forum to kind of promote and not just promote, but being a lever to help propel those types of relationships. So I think this has been a great discussion and I really appreciate the time that we've shared. I think we've gotten a number of different questions from the audience. We seem to be pretty good on time, but if you two are open to it, let's take a couple of questions from our audience. I see we have one here that says, what is the one thing you wish someone would have told you as a young woman professional and why? You want to take that, Larissa? Yeah. So again, probably consistent with what I've said about my personality, patience is not one of my virtues. And I think particularly in my career, you know, started out at a law firm as well, then was at an investment bank. And kind of the minute that something, and so, right, in an investment bank, things change every day, right? And the joke is always, if you don't like a decision that's made today, wait three months, because it's going to be completely the opposite three months from now. And I think there were decisions made that weren't about me. They, they weren't personal to me, but just things I didn't like, things I questioned. And so I took that to mean as well, I need to leave. Like I need to find a different job. This isn't going the right way. I don't like this. And first of all, I knew nothing at the time. So, you know, my, my frame of reference in evaluating those decisions was probably questionable at best. And then I, I just think with some patience or perhaps talking to, you know, some of the senior folks there, understanding decisions better, but just also being patient and, and letting things play out instead of having such a preconceived idea about how they were going to play out would have been useful. In hindsight, I'm, I'm still happy with the decisions I made, but I think I could have been a lot more patient with, with a lot of things. And? Well, I would agree with, first of all, that that also applies to me, but another, and I, this is something I did get as advice, but it was, it was invaluable, is trust yourself and trust your gut. So that is something I would strongly encourage, male, female, whatever age, if you don't be wishy-washy, listen for feedback, trust your, trust your gut. Okay, we've got a couple other questions here. We have one question here. How do we use the Women's Leadership Council platform to share our stories about these types of microaggressions toward change? And do you have any, uh, you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I think I would say, uh, thank you for the question. And I think it's through organizations like the Women's Leadership Council that we can accelerate change. So we can do that through programming and through programming, we're all becoming educated increasing our membership and having that kind of spider web network out of educated women and men, male leaders to perpetuate the way we want to go and to counter these stereotypes. So I think the Women's Leadership Council just can, as a, as a body, as an organization, can have some heft and clout to help move the, the needle on this issue. 
Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, I just think, you know, discussing them, discussing, that's why I think men are so important to the discussion about women's leadership and having discussions about something that happened to you that, that you found very offensive. And, you know, perhaps, perhaps people, you know, just sharing those stories, helping people understand why it was offensive, because perhaps it's something that, you know, that a male wouldn't have recognized her as offensive or, you know, that I would have said, well, how is it really such a big deal? And to you it is, right? And and that's what really matters. And I think the more we're just sharing stories and and understanding what is offensive behavior and what is not, that's that's how you're gonna get to the empathy that that gets to change and have people recognize that, you know what, I didn't intend this to be anything offensive, and yet that's how it came across. Right. And and hopefully that affects change, you know, with people who are willing to change and then hopefully that affects change more broadly with people who are less willing to change as well. I think it takes a lot of patience and commitment and time. And the word microaggressions is important because Larissa expanded on it, which is there, there are people who are perhaps performing some of these microaggressions that may not even be cognizant of it. So I think we need to have these difficult conversations, but in a safe way. Uh, with our colleagues. I agree completely. You know, there's one comment, it's uh, not a question, but a comment that was made and it reads, you know, I survived top executive environments by never taking situations personal, even if offensive. And I think that really plays into the comments that, that uh, both of you just made. And there does need to be a bit of bifurcation between taking not only uh, disappointments and or challenges personally versus what needs to be done professionally. And so being able to bifurcate those, those two situations and focus on either the task at hand, the situation at hand, or the individuals is, is often critical toward making optimal decisions for both you, your career, but as well as for uh, some of the entities that uh, you may involve with, whether they're nonprofit organizations or your uh, professional company. So I thought that was an interesting comment. I don't know if, you, if, if either of you kind of have a reaction to that comment, but I thought I would share it. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's another way that I would say, don't take it personally, listen to it, and then build on it is a, a kind of a concept that I learned vicariously through some of my friends who are comedy improvisers, and that's yes and. When you push back on something and somebody, you know, perhaps it's a microaggression, perhaps somebody doesn't intend what they mean and you you bristle and you, you know, it comes out as some version of no, it's a conversation stopper. But yes, and that kind of philosophy is a conversation promoter and encourages dialogue. So I would say do what you can to avoid saying some version of the word no and continuing dialogue. Yeah. And I, I mean, even I think, right, what gets dangerous, and I, I completely agree, obviously, like I, you know, I said, I think I've been successful because I haven't taken things personally but there comes a point where you shouldn't just grin and bear it, right? And not take it personally. And so, I mean, even the anecdote that, that Anne gave about her colleague where the judge thought she was the court reporter, right? I mean, that's a situation where you hope there's an opportunity there to be like, hey, you know, at some point, like, by the way, like, you know, I was a little bit offended that you asked if I was the court reporter, like, you know, or, or some way to, to also address it not just to, to take to not take it personally, but to have a dialogue that helps change that behavior. And I would say, obviously, that's that's a key goal of ours, because I, I think it's both are important. Don't take it personally. But if if you smile and nod at it and don't take it personally and nothing ever gets said, the status quo is always going to be there. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I agree. And you know what that gets to? It, it really speaks to, I think, attitude. Right. So whether it's leadership or anything else, it's uh, it's really the attitude you choose to take right to a situation, to your family, to your friends, to your to your career. And so I think if you approach things with the right attitude and a clear mind, I find that that often provides uh, a level of clarity as well. Yeah. And I, you mentioned it, Ken, with your anecdote about your oldest daughter. I mean, treating all people well 
is so important. One of the questions I see in here, what, what, what is one mistake you witness leaders making more frequently than others, not treating people well, right? And you see that everywhere. Um, you see that, you know, again, not just with leaders, but with more junior people who will kiss a senior person's butt and then treat their peers or, you know, their junior associates with much less respect or will treat an assistant with much less respect. And, you know, that's not okay. And I think one of the things I love about the way the world is evolving is, is you see that and you see people getting themselves in trouble for treating a peripheral person disrespectfully, even if they're not core to the business that's being executed. And I, I think that's so important. There's no reason, you know, to not be treating people well. I would also add to that empathy is another mistake, and it's related to that concept. You you can't be a good leader if you can't have some measure of empathy for the people who report to you. Agreed. Looking at the time here, I think we have approached the hour. And so, look, I think this has been a really good discussion, one that I am uh, proud to have been a part of. And not only this discussion, but everything that, you know, that we, and particularly uh, you two as co-chairs of the Women's Leadership Council have done thus far and everything else that uh, that we hope to achieve here going forward. So this is this has been a really good discussion and I, um, I thank both of you for your time. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.